I love the way the First Gen Lounge makes me feel. Because it creates a space where I belong. Where we're able to create community. The fact that it's a community. It's a safe place. It also gives me a place to understand different perspectives. The stories of these individuals prescribe transformational perspective. I receive encouragement, enlightenment, empowerment. And also serve as a catalyst to just keep going. Where we're able to be our true selves. I'm allowed to be an unapologetic first gen. And above all else, tell our story. And every episode is unique. I love it. I'm your host, Dr. Eve, and I'd like to welcome you to the First Gen Lounge. Good day, good day, good day, folks. I'm trying something new rather than hey, y'all, although in my heart, I really want to do it. (laughs) So I'm going to just do it anyway. Hey, y'all. I have the pleasure today to have someone who I just think is brilliant. And first time we met, really, we just really hit it off. And so I have Cinemet Olatunji here today. Did I do it right? I did it right. I'm proud. Did it right. I guess I'm so sensitive about the names. It seems like sometimes I'll be talking to people too and I'll say the name right the first time and wrong the second time. And then I'm like, how did I do that? And I'm so sensitive about names because my name Evangeline is, oh Lord, that's all. <laughs> so yeah, so welcome to the show. So glad that you are here with us. And again, happy new year. How are you? Thank you. Thank you. First, thank you for having me. I'm well excited about this year. You know, got some time off during the holidays or just, you know, refreshed and ready to take the year to put some things in place. So, hmm. Absolutely love that. Well, I really love to jump into it. So would you tell us who you are? Tell us your story and really how you've become who you are today. Sure. So I am born and raised in New York. Spent the first couple of years of my life in the Bronx before my parents, you know, moved us to Brooklyn. And when I say us, I mean my 12 siblings. So, you know, my parents, they are pretty revolutionary people. And in the 70s, you know, 60s and 70s, decided that they were going to go back to their roots. And so they changed their names to African names. They became vegan. And, you know, my dad, who is revolutionary in his right, decided that, you know, he wanted to make sure that he was in charge of educating his children. And so rather than putting us in public school here in New York City, my dad decided to, you know, connect with other parents of like mind and started an African-centered private school where I went from K to 12, which is still, you know, in existence today. My children attend the school. So I did 12 years of this school, this African-centered school, where we learned about, you know, who we were, you know, beyond this slavery and really just were inculcated with these African values and principles. And I think that this foundation really, really, you know, shaped the person I am today. And so, you know, my parents, they named me Sedemet, which means she who is humble by following, you know, the wisdom and enlightenment of the ancient ones. And, you know, really my parents were about steeping their children in not just African thought, but African culture. And everything about our upbringing was about our African self-identity. And I know that that wasn't an easy thing for them to raise 12 children in New York City. Vegan, you know, before it was this big vegan frame that you see now. And oftentimes growing up, I felt very, very different and often tried to reject many of the qualities and the principles that my parents tried to inculcate in their children. 
But as I look back now, and I'm a mother of two myself, I have a 13-year-old girl and 11-year-old son, I see the wisdom in them, you know, looking at the ways in which we raised our children in African societies. Then I went to college and I went to a predominantly white college, which was a bit of a culture shock for me, but it was necessary. You know, I think that because I was steeped in this African-centered world, you know, I knew who I was as a, as a black girl and then a black woman. I needed to be in spaces where I felt a little bit uncomfortable. But it taught me how to really like stand my ground and be proud of who I was and be proud of the differences, you know, that I had. And so I, I got my bachelor's degree in English from Marymount Manhattan College and did not know what I was going to do with that and decided that I was going to leave my parents' house in New York, move to Washington, D.C., where I started teaching high school English at an African-centered charter school in D.C., and I did that for about six years. And, you know, the issues that I saw young people facing in the classroom, you know, I saw like these young people really want to learn, but there's so many things happening in their communities and in their homes, you know, in their neighborhoods that is really preventing them from accessing the resources and the education that we were trying to provide them and decided that I was going to go get my master's degree from the Mecca, Howard University, the real HU. And from there, thought I wanted to work in domestic violence and sexual assault and spent a lot of my field placements in those settings. And I had a professor who used to bring in professionals and one day brought in some folks who worked in DC's child welfare system. And I made up my mind that I was never going into child welfare and that it was just not for me. It wasn't, I didn't have the right temperament for it. And once I graduated, I spent about a year working with formerly homeless families and come to find out it was not what I wanted to do either. And a friend of mine, a colleague, you know, she said, it was an opening at the child welfare agency. And I'm like, that's the place that I did not want to go. <laughs> you know, I would get to work with older youth who were transitioning out of foster care and coming out of working as a high school English teacher. I thought, well, I could be suited for that. And I started working there and I haven't looked back since. And that's where I've been, you know, for my entire social work career. Man, that is a lot to unpack. Yes. And and for so many reasons that are, are exciting to me, one, you have how many siblings? There's 12 of us. Whew. <laughs> so even just kind of, because I know we're about the same age, and I'm just thinking in my head, the time frame when you were born, that they weren't really making families like that anymore. Yeah. Like, that's when, you know, that curve happened, and people were like, nah, I'm good with three or four. And your family was like, nah, we're going to go a whole 14 people in the family. That is really cool, because I want to go back to that, because I'm thinking, wow, it was 12 of you all and your parents didn't have education, but then you still were like, I'm going to go to school and because they pushed it. What was it like to navigate that and even figure out what college was and even how to pay for it with the family that large? Well, it's interesting because both my parents started college and then decided that wasn't the route for them. Wow. And they went the entrepreneurial route. So my dad is an author and he's authored some, you know, 40 something books, but did not finish college. And my mom is, you know, runs a vegan restaurant and while the both of them were like, oh, college is not really for us and decided to go with the entrepreneurial route, they always made it very clean and clear that you have to go to college. Mm. And so, you know, I would say that even though we were pushed to go to college, my parents were very much so like, 
all right, figure out, you know, what schools you want to go to and kind of left it up to us to kind of navigate those waters with schools. And so for me personally, I wanted to go to an HBCU, Thurgood Black College. When I was an undergrad, my mother was like, no, you need to stay in New York. And so that was <laughs> the parameters she put around it. And I was offered a scholarship. I had two siblings, older siblings who were already in college. And then I had two who were like younger, who were directly behind me going to college within the next year or two. And so when I got a science scholarship, my parents were like, well, that's the school you're going to. And that was the end of the conversation. Because <laughs> it's paid for. We ain't got time for them games. Exactly. <laughs> that is, um, that's it's really cool because I'm, I'm so fascinated. There aren't, and I'm just saying this from what I've experienced, there aren't many families that are that big that can always figure out how to make a way for their children and pushing their children to go to school, but in the way that even so you get in scholarships so they're not having to come out of pocket. Mm-hmm. And I think that you bring home or you drive home a really good point, especially for those who may come from larger families, that it's important that you prioritize in terms of thinking about going to college. And while you wanted to go to an HBCU, that financial part was much more necessary and so you did that, but you still got to go to an HBCU. So it wasn't like, you know, the dream didn't happen. It was just a dream deferred. Yeah. That is really cool. And then thinking about, you know, deciding to go to graduate school. What, look, what made you choose the Mecca? I hate, I hate. <laughs> I like a Howard Love. Look, actually, the, the woman who was my mentor and the one who changed my life and helped me get into school and had me on the full scholarship undergrad is is a, a Howard alum and was amazing. She recently passed as well. And it's just like, wow. So I have love for Howard because I know some good people from Howard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, great question. I, like I said, I always wanted to attend Howard University. And, you know, when my mother shot that dream down, you know, I was devastated. And it was like, we mm. back and forth and we argued about it. And it was like this big showdown between mother and daughter. In hindsight, I recognize, like as a mother now, I have a 13-year-old daughter. I recognize the wisdom in my mother, you know, wanting me to stay closer to home. I was only 17 when I graduated from high school and, you know, still very naive. I grew up in this world, you know, that was very sheltered same school for 12 years Mm -hmm. and so when it did you know when the opportunity presented for me to go to Howard it wasn't even a a decision you know Mm -hmm. I was in DC and there were other MSW programs in the area but you know Howard University is rooted in the black perspective Mm -hmm. and so when I think about social work and you think about disproportionality you think about you know African Americans who make up these different systems you know, I wanted to go to school and I wanted to learn the theoretical frameworks that, you know, frame this work that we do. But I also wanted to learn it in a way that's going to really impact the people that I'm going to work with. And, and not just like, you know, do the work, but be able to say like, this is how I'm successfully doing the work. Mm, mm, love that. And thinking about the fact that you left New York to move to Washington and really start a life there, you moved back. What was that transition like for you to move away from home, to be gone, and even maybe imagine you were going to probably stay gone? I'm not really sure about that because for me, I thought I was going to stay gone. And then like to come back, you know, home and really navigate all the identity and the transition. What has it been like for you? Um, so it was difficult in the beginning. You know, you come from a large family. You're always used to people being in the house. Mm. And when I moved to D.C., I was renting a room and then I rented a basement apartment and I was suddenly alone. And I think I cried like the first four months mm. of 
of being in DC. But I think the one thing about my parents that they did very, very well is that not only did they connect us to a community in New York, but they also connected us to various communities outside of New York. So I had an extensive community in DC, you know, folks that I could go and build, you know, my own little community with. I could develop these relationships. I think within like six months, I had figured out like, all right, well, these are the friendships. These are the people who I can rely on. Initially, I called my mother every day, you know, crying, and then that decreased. And I was very young when I moved out. I was only 21 years old. Mm. So, you know, once I began to build my community in D.C. and build those networks, it really got easier for me. And I'd say that D.C. is where I spent my formative adult years and mm-hmm. learned about myself as a woman, you know, really started like, you know, that's when my career started. And so many of the things that I learned working in child services, working in, you know, with formerly homeless families, working in domestic violence spaces, I've really learned some very valuable skills that I was able to then bring back to New York and really just be able to hone those skills that I learned to just make the impacts that we're, we're currently making with the students that I work with now. Was it hard for you to move back to New York? It was not. I have been trying to move back to New York for about five years now. And, you know, I, I think because I left New York when I was 21, I thought like, oh, you know, I mean, I've always been a city girl. And yes. So, <laughs> yes, Lord. <laughs> it has to be a little bit. DC is like, yeah, it's, you know, I, it's kind of like a city. <laughs> not, not, I'm not in that. I'm not in that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some of my friends are going to be like, okay, don't talk about DC. <laughs> but I wanted to move back to New York. My son said to me, like, why, why are we here? And he was born in DC. He's like, everyone in the family lives in New York and we live in DC. Mm. And so, you know, the opportunity presented itself for us to come back to New York. And New York is very interesting. It's very different from what, you know, very different being an adult in New York than it is being a, a teenager in New York. So I'm seeing New York from a very different lens now. Mm-hmm. Not the New York that I remembered when my parents were taking care of me. That is really interesting to me because I left home to go to school undergrad. And my thing was, I'm never coming back. I'm never coming back. I don't want to be here. I'm going to go off and make a better life. And that means I'm not coming back. Well, (laughs) as I got older and I started to come back to visit home, I started thinking to myself, I like it here. It's nice here. I want to be home. (laughs) And so I don't know at what point during the time that I was away that I just really became fixated on getting back to North Carolina and then more specifically getting to Charlotte. And it's still a mission of mine. But to say that because a lot of times there are people, especially first gens, who leave and make it and think that being away means that they've done something special. And you have done something special, but there is an advantage. There is a a beauty, if you can, if you want to, in going home, that you're not a failure because you go home. And I had associations in my head with if I go home, even if I want to go home, if I go home, then I would be like the people who never left. But it doesn't even mean that the people who never left are not doing well. It was just in my head that to go away meant to be successful. So I'm glad that you share you know, with us that even for you, you did want to go home. You were away. You created life. Um, you were in D.C. And D.C., I like I like D.C. I really like D.C. D.C. is nice. Chicago and New York. I've been to those places. Chicago is my favorite. That's why I mentioned it. So it's just thinking about how we transition. So really good stuff. And then you said to me earlier that you were just totally against the whole child welfare. Like it was not on your radar. Mm-hmm. But it definitely fell into it. 
So what about the work have you enjoyed most and what kind of impact do you believe you've made thus far and would you like to make in the future? I know that was a loaded question. No, um, so, you know, wow. I think, I mean, there's a lot of bureaucracy in child welfare, right? Mm -hmm. It is the youth who I work with every day and it's one of the most challenging work that I've ever done in all my life. I would say that the first year that I worked in child welfare, I, you know, reminded myself daily, like, this is why you didn't want to do this. (laughs) But as I began to really get to, I got to know the young people that I was working with, I began to see them in a very different light. Mm. These young people that I work with are so dynamic. And I think that oftentimes we look at these systems and they're these big budget systems, million dollars, you know, billion dollar industries. And we think that we need to throw these fancy programs at these young people. And that's just, you know, going to change the trajectory of their lives. And what I came to find out is that, you know, you show these young people that you love them and that you are in their corner and you're going to support them. Then the opportunities that you've provided them are just the icing on the cake. And so I currently run a college preparatory academy for high school students who are in the foster care system. And day one, they came in and looked at me and said, we don't know you, we don't trust you. And I'm like, yes, you're right. That's something that I have to earn. And I hope that, you know, one day I get the honor of being able to gain your trust. And working with these young people who have experienced some very traumatic events in their lives, to see them come to that place of, really understanding that you do love them and that they can trust you is one of those life-changing moments. And so, you know, you look at the outcomes for young people in foster care. I say this, if Amazon said, somebody ordered a package and said, 50% of your orders are going to be shipped from our warehouse and the other 50% will not, we'd be outraged. We'd say, no, all of the orders that come in through the Amazon website need to be, you know, sent out. And then they say, you know, the 50% of packages that we send from our warehouse, only 3% are going to make it to their destination. They would not be the organization that they are. Mm. And if you look at outcomes for young people in foster care, only 50% of our young people graduate from high school. And then those that graduate from high school and make it to college, only 3% of them matriculate through college. And these are the statistics that child welfare agencies across the U.S. are, are boasting. And, you know, it's, it's sad, right? These are our young people. These, this is the next generation. And we have not figured out, when I say we, I include myself because the work of young people is collective, right? Mm-hmm. It's village. So we haven't figured out how to best serve these young people, right? So that they are the successful, dynamic young people that we know that they can grow up to be. So our academy now, you know, this is our fourth year and I don't think I've done anything special, but, you know, our students come and live on campus every summer. We have had a hundred percent return rate. Why? Because Mm. we love them. They know that this is a safe space for them, that one month out of the year they can come and they're going to live on campus and they're going to be in a safe space that is going to push them academically that's going to push them to think outside of the box. That's going to push them to be innovative thinkers and critical thinkers and to solve their problems. And so, 
you know, our young people are on track to graduate. They're on track to get scholarships. They are stable in their foster homes. A good number of our young people have achieved permanency, whether they went back home to their parent or they, you know, achieved permanency through adoption. They're in a good space. And so my biggest success is being able to authentically love on young people. And it might sound really, really corny, but there's nothing more satisfying than being able to help a young person to identify that I'm merely a facilitator in this thing, right? Everything that they have and everything that they need is already inherent within them. And we just provide them the opportunities for them to tap into that and let that shine as they go about their own destinies and their own journeys. The thing I love the most about what you've shared and hearing you talk about it is that I would have never known that this wasn't something that you didn't want to do because there's so much passion in what you're saying. And you pulled in the research and I'm like, yeah, buddy, she's talking statistics. And so for me, you know, you, you know what you know about it and to be able to see the bigger picture. So even to be able to open yourself up to what life had for you and then to be in this place where you see a hundred percent return rate, where they do that at? There's not a lot of programs that I know of anywhere with anything youth related that could even get to 50% sometimes. And so for you all to have made such a connection with your students is an indication of the desire to make a difference. And I commend you for that. And I also commend you for being able to say that something that you identify as a strength of yours is being able to authentically love on them. Because as first gens, we don't always see our strengths because we're so focused on our weaknesses or, or what we lack. And so I think that that's really cool of you to have brought up and you know hope that those who are listening are reminded themselves to see the good that you that you bring to this world and see the strengths that you do have, even if it is loving on people or celebrating others or just showing up. That's a strength and it's something that, you know, is meaningful. Thank you. You're very, very welcome. Very welcome. And, and then even thinking about, you know, the work that you're doing, what would you hope to do long term and thinking about your career? Uh, you want to stay, you know, in the field? Have you considered entrepreneurship ever? Yeah. So I think, you know, as we entered 2020, new decade, I said that I think a big impact, it goes back full, you know, goes full circle. So my parents are entrepreneurs. And so I grew up, you know, never seeing my parents go out to a traditional job and punch a clock and there's value in that, right? Mm. But them, the business was in the home. There were offices in the home. And, you know, I saw the hustle and bustle of them running their businesses. And I knew at some point that that would be me. But I also knew that I needed to gain some skills in order to get to that place. And so while in our cohort, we have 25 young people in the program. And they say to me all of the time, they call me Miss O. They're like, Miss O, more young people in foster care need these kinds of programs. And so I think that's the next step. You know, I'm an adjunct professor at Hunter College and I see the light light up for students in my class. I see that when that light bulb goes off mid-semester where they're like, they have that aha moment, right? And that's when you can really like help them to identify that which they're most passionate about and how they're going to show up in the world and the responsibility that they have as future social workers to not just go and push paper or case manage, but to really make impact in the spaces that they find themselves. And so for me, I'm like, this work needs to be, we, we need to scale it. Right. Because we're not talking about 
selling items or, you know, producing things. We're talking about children, right? And I say this, you know, I've been trainings in New York and in Maryland and in, in different states on youth engagement. And I tell my students that if you are not 100%, 110, 150% about this work, about these young people, if you're not willing to do whatever it takes to help them take it to the next level, this is not work for you. Go find something else to do, right? Figure out something else that does not mess with these children any more than what they've already experienced. Mm-hmm. And so that message is super, super critical to, you know, my future work. Anytime I do a training, whether it's foster care one-on-one or building trauma-informed toolkit for your staff, I put the, the onus and the accountability on the adults, right? Mm-hmm. Children are children. Their brains are informed at, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, right? We want to hold them to this standard when we ourselves are not doing it. And so I always hold the adults in the room accountable to, if you're going to try to teach something to a child, you better be living it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my work is about how do we take this and help other people to see their responsibility. And you might not think that you have a responsibility to young people in foster care. Your work could be doing something totally different. But think about the ways in which we could all impact their lives. They've been removed from their homes. They've experienced trauma. And now the village needs to say, what responsibility do I have to these young people? So as I move into 2020, I began to think about how can I take this message far and wide? How can I teach folks and really tell people that if you're thinking about child welfare and you are not coming with the same energy, stay away. And so those two messages are equally important. Well, that answers the question I had next. <laughs> what advice did you give? You already gave me so that, hey, stay away. If, if you're not coming ready, stay away. But, and I'm glad that you, it is what it is. Just say it how it needs to be said because it's not about money making. It's not about power and, the, you know, this ideal thought of leadership just to kind of get ahead. It's really doing the work to help the children. Absolutely. And need people who are really concerned and really, like I said, authentically engaged in the work of helping you. And I mean, honestly, I'm one of those people, I like you, but high school is about as best as you're going to get with me because I lack the patience. I'm just being honest. I I lack the patience. And so when I used to think about, well, I do want to work with students and I said, oh, college students, but that's, that's my, the perfect group of students for me because they're, they're in that, you know, stage between being grown and not grown. So Mm -hmm. I can be grown with you, but then you're not, you know, you're not, fully there yet but did the white you develop in a way that I think high school gets a little touchy-feely for me with like parents and stuff mm. and again so you had the experience working high school and then to be able to do child welfare so it all came together which I think this is really really fascinating that you have essentially become your parents in a way <laughs> and I don't know if you I'm sure you thought about it but it's just interesting that you work with youth in a way that like your, how your family work with you and you talk about the village and so amazing how things that are instilled in us from childhood never go away but even shows up in our work and we don't always realize that it's perfect positioning because you understand multiple personalities you understand you know having come up in an environment where it is a large family 
and learning to be resourceful. So everything just, like you said, came totally full circle, even now to the entrepreneurship thing. So I'm like, this is really fascinating. And I love to see the evolution from afar and just what you've been able to tell through your story. And that's the power of telling your story so that we can be aware of what's shaping us to know how we want to continue to shape our futures. Absolutely. So, well, I can't even. <laughs> I, yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so yes. Yeah, like, but it's, it's not a bad thing. You become your parents, you know, and because you did get the education. But like you said, you grew up not seeing people punch the clock. And I'm thinking, yeah, oh, it's interesting how you start thinking about the world and what's possible for you mm-hmm. when you didn't see that traditional sense of of success, you know, for that. For your dad to have 40 books, let's start with that. <laughs> no college of 40 books. How many people do you know who are professors that haven't gotten even 40 publications yet? So it's just the thing of it's about the person and the drive and, the, you know, that desire to want more for themselves, but to also be honest about what they want for their life. And yet look at you and look what they created. And so that's, again, it's really, really powerful. Just looking again from the outside in. And I'm grateful to hear of a family of color, a black family with a large Again, a large family at that. There we go. That has been able to really do some good in this world and to really change the face of what we think about big black families. Like we know there were challenges, but families of two and three have challenges. But to be able to see the success is like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. So um, we are getting to a point where we're, you know, going to have to wrap up. And my God, again, we talk all day because I really like talking to you. And it's, you know, like I, I love what you're bringing to this conversation and how you're bringing awareness to child welfare and youth engagement because it's not something that honestly is a natural thought for me. And I, I just told you for obvious reasons. But again, it's needed in this in this show and in this world when we think about first gen and what it means to graduate and do something in the world that's meaningful that this is one aspect of the world that, well, I said, people really need to be in. But when you think about, you know, growth for yourself personally and professionally, what are some things that you're doing now to continue to grow, especially as a first-gen college graduate? I'm so, you know, I'm always a, a lover of knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. and so I'm always making sure that I stay up to breast on best practices and, I belong to the National Association of Black Social Workers, and I attend that conference every year. And so, you know, I do the external stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Trainings and workshops and things of that nature. But I think that the one thing that my parents really, really, you know, impressed upon us was the connection between mind, body, and spirit. And so, you know, that internal work and having, like, that internal environment be as healthy as possible in order to really show up Externally, in the correct way, is something that's like really, really important to me, and something that I've really started to take more ownership around. And so, you know, meditating, right, and making sure that you know I'm able to do this work properly, right. You have to be really, really balanced. And like I said in the beginning, there's a lot of bureaucracy, and there's a lot of folks who are not in this work for the right reasons, and. It, it could cause you to become uncentered and unbalanced. And so meditation for me is, is a huge centering activity, way of life, you know, to just make sure that I'm able to access the things that I need, be able to see who is for the children and not for the children. I'm very protective of them. And I have to, in order to have the power of discernment of who should be in their space, 
I need to be able to pick up on different like cues and things of that nature. And if I'm all over the place and I'm stressed and I'm unable to, I'm not gonna be able to receive those messages. And so a big part of my current growth is making sure like I'm staying on top of like what I eat. And so I've been vegan all my life, you know, but there's so many things in the environment, especially in New York City, <laughs> um, that, you know, can still find its way and, you know, and, and, and result in illness. Mm. That I'm, you know, exercising consistently and I'm eating properly and, you know, just maintaining that internal balance. I think growth within means growth without, right? You develop that discipline to make sure that, you know, you are, you know, that self-love, that self-care. You know, one of the things I ask myself at nighttime before I go to bed is, how did you love yourself today, mm-hmm. right? And that could just be as simple as I drank eight glasses of water. So growth for me is, is continual, you know, but I think we tend to, as professionals, to focus on the external stuff. You know, how many clients did I acquire? How many trainings did I book? You know, what workshops did I attend? What networking events did I attend? And we don't put enough emphasis on making sure that we have these internal healthy environments that can then reflect the qualities that we we intend to show up with, right? Mm -hmm. So my young people know, like, they can be challenging. You know, I I move on campus with them in the summertime and leave my own children you know, for that month. And they'll say to me, Miss O, nothing rattles you. Not to say that it doesn't, right? I still have my moments. For the most part, able to meet challenges and I'm a place of peace and, you know, not letting things upset me and getting me all rattled. And so as professionals, we have to be super aware of the internal growth and how we're feeding that. Just, I think, even more as we do the external stuff. Hmm. As above, so below. Mm, absolutely absolutely I um think about what I've been doing lately and I just been like working out every day mm-hmm. I was working out before I lost a lot of weight but I wasn't working out because I changed my eating habits I was like oh well I changed my eating habits and that's easy but I was like there's still something missing and it's just for a uh, piece of mental health for me that was about working out and it's challenging myself to just focus and be with myself for that 30 minutes 45 minutes an hour a day but what I'm finding is that's becoming self-care time and it's time that I'm just to myself. I'm unbothered, you know, except for what I'm focused on. And that's just when I'm when I'm done, I just feel so good. And I'm like, I forgot how good it felt to actually work out. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's nice to have lost the weight, but it feels really good to have the energy, energy now, like for real, and, and to sleep better. So good stuff. So last question for you, and this is my favorite question to ask everyone. If you could leave us with one piece of advice, uh, one thought, or just one thing to remember you by, what would that thing be? Well, um, I never thought about that. I mean, so one of the things that I tell my students is that the, the you know, the aging 44th Instagram says, you know, to deliver others, you have to first deliver yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're no good to others if you're not good to yourself. And so I think that the work we do, the work that I do, you know, has its challenges and it's not always pretty it's not always easy but I think that if I had to if folks had to most remember me by it would just be like who is really about doing this work for young people and showing up for young people you know Mm -hmm. and that that hexagram to me that saying to me really gets to the root of accountability and I think that 
I've tried to be accountable to the blessings that I've received. My parents didn't go to college, but we lived a very blessed life. They are very successful entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to be accountable to the blessings that I've received. Not just saying like, well, I received mine. And so let me go and just do, you know, something that's going to help me to accumulate those blessings even more mm-hmm. in, a, in a financial way. So being accountable to all that I've received means a life of service and giving back. But in order to do that, I have to be accountable to myself. And so I really try to, you know, I I hope that when folks think about me and the work that I do, it's just about being rooted in a sense of accountability to this work and to our children and to just helping them to manifest these destinies that they have, despite all that they've been through. Mm. I'm here for it, sis. I'm here for it. Like, I, I just feel it. I feel it. I just feel it. Like, you just, just I say it again, the passion. I just, I just, my hope for you was that all that you desire is exactly how things will be. Thank you. And that your legacy is truly felt. And it's interesting to even mention that because I've been talking a lot about legacy. And I just, it's no doubt in my mind hearing you talk that what you are saying, what you think, what you believe will be everything and some because your heart's in the right place. And that's just so evident. You are so, so very welcome. So very welcome. Well, tell the folks where on the internet they can find you. Um, Well, you can find me on LinkedIn and then the First Star College of Staten Island Instagram page. So it's First Star College of Staten Island. And then folks can always connect with me on LinkedIn, Sinemet, OSMG. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, I am, again, thrilled. I'm probably want you to come back one of these days. We got some more things to talk about. <laughs> we really have more to talk about. I need you to talk to you. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Look, you need somebody to st- stand in a gap for me with this youth. Come on, sis. You got me. I got you. So thank you so much for your time, for your energy, for your wisdom, just for being who you are, for your story, and for helping change the world. One download at a time, but wishing you well in, in all that lies ahead. And know that if you ever need anything, you can call on us. We got your back. Thank you. And I appreciate you and all the work you're doing as well. Thank you so very much.